Good morning, everybody. If you want to turn, uh, we're going to be reading Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 15. And it says, the hu- I'm reading from the NLT, by the way. Uh, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs she has not laid, so are those who get their wealth by unjust means. At midlife, they will lose their riches. In the end, they will become poor fools. But we worship at your throne, eternal, high, and glorious. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust of the earth, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. O Lord, if you heal me, I will truly be healed. If you save me, I will truly be saved. My praises are for you alone. People scoff at me and say, what is this message from the Lord you talk about? Why don't your predictions come true? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. My voice is louder than Jeremy's. Jeremy, you did so well. I'm going to ask you to do it again sometime. Dread. Um, it's interesting, as I was reading that passage, uh, I was tempted to have Jeremy actually read a little bit less of it because it ends. This is your free sermon of the morning. It actually ends with people... Um, challenging the message of the prophet. In verse 15, it says, how, in, and sorry, I'm reading from the CSB, but it's the same word. Hear how they keep challenging me. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. They're saying it in mockery. And I don't know if you realize this, but as he's reading through some of these descriptions, talking about the human heart, and as this prophecy is being spoken over the deceptiveness of the heart, As we turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning, a section, the final section of our study that we're going to be in this morning is going to be talking about Judas again. And as the prophecy, as I was reading that in Jeremiah, it just kind of struck me how descriptive it was of what's going to end up happening to Judas. And it's interesting to me that even in that passage where it says, where is the word of the Lord, let it come, and I thought of how there As he's being betrayed, Jesus is going to be sitting at the Passover meal, at the Last Supper with the disciples in our text today, and there the Word of God, because that's how John describes Jesus in John chapter 1, the Word is there present. He has come, he is present, and he is available to people right there in that moment. And Judas, who's going to have his heart examined and known by Jesus, is going to be presented with this very moment of The word of God is here, now what am I going to do with that? The word of God is present, the Lord has come, how how am I going to respond to that? Am I going to mock him with my life, or am I going to receive him as Lord of my life? And so as we turn together this morning to Mark chapter 14, I felt that that passage in Jeremiah really set the tone. And as we go to find verse 12, which is where we left off last week, Judas, having sought opportunity to betray Jesus, he's bargained with the religious leaders at this point to hand him over. We know from the other gospel accounts for 30 pieces of silver, 
It's a pitiful amount. Last week we noted in our text that it was Wednesday preceding the Passover. And now as we begin in verse 12, it's going to be Thursday of that week. And as the disciples are following Jesus' instructions, and as we'll read in a moment, they're, they're one day away from the crucifixion of Jesus. In our text this morning, just to kind of give us an idea of what we're talking about, it's going to be less than 24 hours from the crucifixion when we reach the end of our study. Less than 24 hours from the moment that we end our study this morning, Jesus will be on the cross. And as I mentioned last week, as the cross is really starting to loom larger and larger and the, the moment is getting closer. And here is Jesus very intentionally taking steps forward towards that goal, towards that mission of the cross. He's doing so resolutely. He's doing it courageously. And I just want us to take a moment this morning and recognize and appreciate the courage of our Savior. The amazing resilience of Jesus, his bravery in walking towards the cross and not wavering in that walk, very intentionally, moment by moment, knowing what was coming for him, knowing that the betrayer is in the room with him even in the upper room. He continues moving forward. As I considered that thought, my mind wandered, as it often does, and I thought of Homer which is a weird thing to think of. You're like, really? You go, to, you go to Homer when your mind wanders. Not often. I'm not talking Homer Simpson either, the other one. I thought of Homer and how he wrote of the great warrior Achilles. And he told this story about him that when he was told that he was going out to his last battle and that he was going to die, he was surely going to be killed. It was a for sure thing. Achilles responded with this statement. Nevertheless, I am for going on. Nevertheless, I am for going on. When told of his fate, when told that he would die in this battle, that was his response. And I thought of Jesus. Knowing full well what was coming, knowing full well what was next for him within a day's time, the beatings, the crucifixion, the sin of the world laid upon him, his death. Nevertheless, Jesus very clearly demonstrates through every action I am for going on. I'm going forward. Jesus resolutely sets his gaze and continues the pathway to the cross. So as we pick up in verse 12, we're going to break this down a little bit more than I probably usually would, but I really want us to understand foundationally what we're looking at before we get into the upper room and the Last Supper situation. So beginning in verse 12, we'll read verse 12 through 17 to begin. We'll go a little farther this morning, but we'll start with this. Mark 14, 12 begins this way. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
So this is all in preparation for the Last Supper, and it's all in preparation to share this Passover meal. But let's talk about the feast. Let's talk about Passover and Sabbath for just a moment because it's going to help us in understanding all that's about to happen in the coming chapters. So ordinarily, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread would mean 15 Nisan. That's typically the first day, the day following Passover. But the added description of the day that Mark gives us here is when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, he clarifies he's talking about 14 Nisan. This is the day prior because you would sacrifice the lambs prior so they'd be ready and prepared for the dinner the next day. It makes it clear that 14 is what he's talking about here. Now, I'm going to try not to confuse you because I'm trying not to get confused as well. The way the Jews reckon days is different than we do. They think about it differently. The new date begins at 6 p.m. If you've ever had like a conversation with somebody or read scripture and felt kind of confused as to like how the three days works or how these different timetables work, it's because we're not working with a calendar or a time system that we currently use. So it kind of bends our brains a little bit. It breaks our poor little Western minds. Now, the new date would begin at 6 p.m. Okay, so the 15th, of Nisan would begin at 6 p.m. on Thursday night. Note the Passover had to be eaten between sundown and midnight, the first hours of 15 Nisan. So Thursday evening, between 6 p.m. and midnight, you would have to eat the Passover. That was the Jewish law. So, Carson, I have a slide for this. This will be fun. Can you see that? That's the clearest one I could find. Now, what's fun about this is that you probably have no idea what's going on. But, but let me just, I'll describe it for you, and maybe this will help if you're like, Mike, that was the least helpful tool you've ever used. I'll never use it again, I promise. So it's currently in our text, Thursday the 14th. Okay? They celebrate dinner Thursday evening between 6 p.m. and midnight, and Jesus would be crucified on the next day, which is Friday the 15th, around 9 a.m. He died about 3 o'clock, we're told, 3 p.m., before the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. Thus, a new day, according to Jewish reckoning, would begin 16 Nisan. Am I losing you yet? Okay, I'll go back. Where we're at in the time. I'm serious, I will. Thursday the 14th is next. That's the disciples preparing, right? I'll slow down. They celebrate dinner Thursday evening between 6 p.m. and midnight, and at that 6 o'clock mark, the 15th Nisan begins. Okay? We're, we're together? Oh, we're killing it. You guys are going to pass all your Bible quizzes now. Jesus would be crucified. So for us, we would think the next day, but the 15th Nisan began at 6 p.m. on Thursday night, technically. He will die on Friday, but it will still be the 15th Nisan. We tracking? Okay, try not to get them confused because this is, this is a struggle. That's Passover. Sabbath is going to begin the Saturday following. At 6 p.m. on Friday night, the Sabbath will begin. Okay, so that's where a lot of our confusion comes from is we'll start to look at that and go, well, I thought, I thought Passover was this day. It's like, yes, and Sabbath is the day following. I'll talk about that in a moment. So he dies around 3 p.m. on 15 Nisan, which is a Friday, and that evening, Sabbath will begin at 6 p.m., which is technically, for the Jewish mindset, Saturday. Does that make sense? Okay. That going back thing worked. So in the Jewish mindset, Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's day one. He was in the grave on Saturday. That's day two. And even though the date would shift on Sunday at 6 p.m., 
the fact that it was Sunday the next day, the morning had dawned, they would count that as day three. Jesus died, was in the grave three days, and rose again. That's how the Jewish mind reckons it when you look at time. See, we look at it and go, that's not three full days. That's not how they thought about it. You have to think about it in its context in that time period. And this mess kind of explains that. And it's actually like, that, it's like, it's that wide. So like, it's really hard to show you the whole thing. But that's, I mean, especially if you want to read any of it. But I can send that to you if you want to see it later. It's, it's fascinating to read. This is why Jesus told him that he would rise on the third day. In Jewish culture, he was exactly right. He was exactly right on when he would rise. Now, this is the fun part. Lambs were slain on Thursday for Passover, 14 Nisan, right? So that's why he's talking about the first day of unleavened bread. Culturally, you could call it one of the two days. But he says on the first day of unleavened bread, when the lambs were slain in preparation for the Passover meal, here's the disciples preparing the upper room. They go to look for the upper room on this day. Lambs were being slain that day for Passover. Here's something that's fascinating. They would also be slain on the next day on Friday for Sabbath. You're in a double holiday. Two holidays are happening. Two meals are going to happen. John indicates that Jesus died as the Paschal lambs were being slaughtered for the high day, which is the double holy day when Passover and Sabbath coincided. So when you hear like, I thought Jesus was slain when the lambs were being killed, but they're being killed for Passover on Thursday. The lambs for Sabbath were being slaughtered on Friday, which places the death of Jesus right between Passover and Sabbath. Symbolism? Isn't God amazing? What he's doing here? Jesus died in the midst of the celebration of God's salvation for his people and the celebration of God's perfect rest. Jesus is both our salvation and our perfect rest. And it was right in between those two that Christ died for the sins of the world. It's fascinating to me. And I really think it sets this foundation of understanding of why very specifically, these things are happening according to God's will. That matters in our text later. It matters greatly in our text later. So, for the disciples in our text, the time has come to prepare for the Passover meal. It's the meal that requires some preparation. I'm going to read that, that section again, and I'm going to show you guys what they would have to do. Isn't this fun? I apologize. It's a little, a little like teacher. Like This is like me back in my class at the school again. I love doing this kind of stuff. So, the Passover meal is a meal that requires special preparation. So they asked Jesus, where do you want us to go so we can prepare for this Passover meal? And he says, you're going to go here. So he says, he sends two of his disciples, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him wherever he enters. Tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So then he says, he's going to show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples go, and they find everything exactly as Jesus told them it would be. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that these two are Peter and John. The two that he sends are Peter and John. And as they go, Jesus is very specific about what they'd be looking for, which when you think about the details that are contained, this very well could mean Jesus had already planned to have this meal at this location. In fact, I, I would lean towards that's exactly what's happening here. There's a couple details that, that clue us in on this. As John and Peter are having their adventure, they come across a man that Jesus tells them is carrying a water jug. Is that odd? 
It is for them. It is for them. It probably wouldn't be for us, but only women carried the water jugs in that day. So if you saw a man carrying a water jug, that's different. You know, and they would go follow. He goes, follow that guy. That's the guy you want to follow, right? So you're like, well, that doesn't necessarily indicate prearranged. It does when you think about when the house that he arrives at, the owner is only needs to be told the teacher needs the room. And so he takes them upstairs, and they find the room, what? Furnished and ready. It's ready for them. It's prepared. Now, it doesn't really change anything about the story, but I think it does indicate to us that there's some intentionality here. There's intentionality that this needs to happen at this location. Now, just so you know, if the question pops up into your mind, like my inquisitive mind, why not just have the Passover at Bethany, where they've been staying, outside of the city? It was on the back side of the Mount of Olives, on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And so if you're in the Mount of Olives on that backside in the region of Bethany, why not just, that's where they've been staying, have your Passover meal there. Because if you were within a certain proximity, you had to eat the meal inside city limits. That was a requirement according to the law. You had to eat the Passover meal inside of the city walls. And the location they're in is inside the city walls. So the preparations for the Passover are fascinating. And I won't get into all the details. How many of you have been to a Seder dinner before? Whoa. Whoa cool. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. For the rest of you, maybe we should do a Seder. It's really fun. Fascinating to to do and experience together. So the preparations for the Passover, they would do a ceremonial search of the house for leaven. You go through the whole house and you would look for leaven because leaven represents what? Sin. And you want to remove sin from the house before you start. Oh, you got ahead of me. Oh, for shame. Oh, my own flesh and blood. There's a list of things (laughs) that the disciples would have to prepare for for this special meal. And they're they're full of this beautiful symbolism that represent the exodus from Egypt and God's salvation. And you're seeing them now there in front of you. So let me walk you through these. First, there was the lamb. Okay, now the lamb was to remind them of how their houses had been protected by the blood of the lamb that went over their doorposts when the angel of death passed through Egypt. It was by that blood that the firstborn were saved, right? Right? Pretty powerful picture. The next was there was unleavened bread to be eaten, and it was to remind them of the bread they had eaten in haste when they escaped from slavery. Thirdly, there was a bowl of salt water to remind them of the tears they'd shed in Egypt and of the waters of the Red Sea through which they had miraculously passed safely. Fourth, there was a collection of bitter herbs. There was horseradish, chicory, endive, Uh, whorehound, if you're familiar with that herb, to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. If you've ever had a Seder, this was the part where the pastor that I served with for years would make me eat this big, massive pile of horseradish in front of the whole church because he said, what we need to see here is tears. (laughs) He literally did this, and and I'd eat so much of it, I'd just bawl in front of the whole church, and be like, oh, the bitterness of Mike. (laughs) There was also a paste called charosheth, which was a mixture of apples, dates, pomegranates, and nuts to remind them of the clay of which they made bricks with in Egypt. Through it, there would be sticks of cinnamon to remind them of the straw which the bricks had been made with. All of this was remembrance. It's bringing to memory. And, and think about it. How often when you eat something and you're, you're remembering, it's bringing back those memories. That's what the intention behind the Passover would be. And then finally, there were four cups of wine. 
that would be a part of this. And the cups contained a little more than half a pint of wine, but three parts of wine were mixed with two of water. And the four cups which were drunk of, at different stages of the meal were to remind them of the four promises of Exodus chapter 6. And this is what it says in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, tell the Israelites, you can switch to that slide, Carson. Great. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. These cups were to remind the people of those promises of God. So here at this feast, all that to set this up. This is what the disciples are preparing. Here at this feast, which represents God's great day of deliverance for his people from slavery, Jesus, the liberator from sin and death, will have his last supper with the disciples before his sacrifice. He's going to sit at this meal, and he, being the teacher, will lead them through every stage of it in remembrance of the faithfulness of his father and as a foreshadowing of what he's about to accomplish. Didn't Jesus come and say, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to what? Fulfill. Every promise of God has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? And here the fulfillment the fulfillment of all God's promises is going to share this meal with them and walk them through it. Don't you wish you were there? Man, I wish I was there. It's so incredible that here as they enjoy this meal that's centered around for the main course, the lamb, that the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is eating it with them. I just wanted us to feel that before we went forward. Kids are feeling it. All right, Mark 14, 17, he continues giving us the account. When evening came, he arrived with the 12. By the way, that's just a small indicator. They're staying in Bethany. They arrived at the location. Verse 18, while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. I don't know if I've read anything recently that hit me as heavy as that statement as I read it over and over again this week. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, just taking this bit by bit. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll notice a difference of physical posture during this Passover meal, the Last Supper. You're going to notice a different posture than you would at other times past. When you looked at the meal originally, how was it eaten, if you remember, from Exodus? What was your posture when you were eating it? Does anyone remember? It's cool. We're a family. You can yell it out. What's that? Not laying down. Not in the past. It was to be eaten with what? Haste. Does anyone know what haste means? When you're late for church on a Sunday morning, that's lack of haste. No. <laughs> it's, it means quickly. 
You're eating it quickly. This isn't a meal you're sitting down and enjoying. It's something you need to do quickly because you have to be somewhere, right? So it's like, it's, it's when I, my terminology, and I don't know if this is common, I just tell someone I'm going to honk down a sandwich, sandwich real quick, right? This is honking down your food, just, just getting going, right? Does anyone say honking down anything? Nope. You're welcome. Use it. All right. So during the Exodus, the people were to eat this meal with haste, and they had to be prepared to leave at any moment. So Exodus 12, 11 says this, here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. You eat it quickly, you eat it prepared. Why? Because they were about to leave. It was God's promise. Once this happens, I'm delivering you. You're out. You're going to be on your way. In fact, it says the Egyptians were like, out, 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 out. They wanted them gone. They were rushing the Hebrews out of Goshen. But in the time of Jesus... People ate this meal reclining because even though Rome was in charge, they still ate the meal as a free people would eat it. And that is in a home with a country of their own, relaxed and reclining. There's a picture there of the fulfillment of God, but there's also a bit of a tragic picture there. That because of the nation's failure to love the Lord their God above anything else, That even though they have the right posture, they're not in the situation that God had called them to be in. They were not truly free. They were not truly doing things the the way that God had called them to do because they had restrictions. They had Rome. So as they're reclining, and that's why when you see that in the text, like this this change of posture, it's, it's beautiful in a way, but it's also sad and tragic in a way. And here's Jesus. Now think about this. If you knew less than 24 hours from the moment you're standing in that you would be hanging on a cross, that you would be dying for the sins of the world, we can't even fathom that, by the way, because this is the Son of God. But if you knew what your fate was, would you be reclining at a meal? Would you be at peace? Jesus shows us something very important here. When we're doing what God has called us to do, No matter what the circumstances or situations around us, we can be at peace. We can be at rest. Because God's in control. Because God is sovereign. And we're about his work. It's not based on circumstances that our peace leaves us. Oftentimes, it's lack of trust in the Lord. It's lack of foundation. So as they're reclining and eating, Jesus drops a bomb that I don't think any of them expected. Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me who's eating with me. John expresses a lot in his gospel the shock of this being Judas. No one expected it. No one expected this to be Judas. We know this blindsided them, left them shocked because they all began to ask individually if they would be the one who would betray him. They they can't peg it, so they're immediately saying, is it me? Like trying to clear their names, Right? Now think about this. Have you ever experienced fear and lack of confidence that led you to ask questions like this? Have you ever experienced fear, lack of confidence in our own moral and spiritual strength that has caused you to ask questions like this? Would I do that? Could I be the one? Am I going to do this? We have to remember, you guys, that our faithfulness to Christ This is for the church. This is for us. Our faithfulness to Christ 
is strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit himself within us. If you struggle with questions like this, you immediately are looking at the strength of your flesh, not the Holy Spirit. And I just call you back to that truth, that the Holy Spirit strengthens us and enables us to do what God has called us to do. Paul speaks of this in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. I don't believe that we have to ask questions like this if we're walking in the Spirit. The disciples are experiencing this moment where they're questioning their own moral commi- like commitments, their own faithfulness to Jesus. Church, I just want to center us again. If you've felt that before, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God has done in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that you are a new creation. Find your peace and your strength in that. Not in what you have done, but what Christ has done for you. Amen? Jesus reveals in verse 18 that this betrayal is especially the worst kind of treachery because the betrayer is not only a friend, but he's one who is eating with me. Not just someone I would say is a friend, but it's someone I share a meal with. That mattered a lot in Middle Eastern culture. It still does. If I share a meal with you, this is a bond. We are friends. We are true to one another. This is the worst kind of betrayal. And Jesus, I wonder if he was thinking... Or if he was even referencing Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Even my friend. Think about it. What was Judas's job amongst the group? He was the treasurer. He kept the money back. He had been entrusted with a very important task amongst the twelve. Even the one who had been entrusted with so great a task is going to turn. Matthew reveals that Judas hypocritically asked the same question that the others were asking. Judas asked the same question. It would have been suspicious if he hadn't, after all, and all the other disciples were asking in the moment. But notice this. Jesus had already given two clues about who the betrayer is. One, he's one of the twelve. Two, he was eating with them at that very moment. And now Jesus gives a third in verses 20 through 21. The one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. That isn't a vague reference to everyone who's sitting there. John records in John 13, 26, Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Jesus clearly implicates, clearly identifies the betrayer, and the disciples still didn't understand, still didn't believe him. Jesus reveals clearly that he knows who will betray him, and yet here sits Judas, Sharing this Passover meal with the Lamb of God. And as I thought of this church, I just thought of his feet being freshly washed by Jesus himself. Do you remember that from John 13? Before this meal began, when they were in the upper room, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And John's very clear that it's before Judas leaves the room. Here he is sharing the Passover meal having his feet washed by Jesus, the one whom he's going to betray. It hits very heavy on the heart. As he's sharing this meal with Jesus, even though Jesus could have stopped him from doing what he was about to do, he doesn't. Not long from now, Jesus will be in the garden. Remember Peter shows up with the sword? He decides to take some 
action for himself, take the matters into his own hands. Do you remember what Jesus reminds Peter of in that moment? He says, listen, I could have 12 legions of angels if I wanted them, right? He's intentionally going towards this mission, towards this goal. Judas isn't getting away with anything. He's actually fulfilling the word of God, even through his own wicked choices. And you're like, oh, so we can do it. Don't take that too far. Don't take that too far. That sets our eyes on the sovereignty of God more than it does we can do whatever we want. Paul says in Romans 6, by the way, that we shouldn't sin more so that grace should abound more. Certainly not. Rather, recognize that even when we see evil in this world that seems like it is so treacherous, so wrong, and people are getting away with it, they're not. Jesus is still on the throne. Amen? He is still having his way. He is still going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Never, ever, ever may we forget that. Don't get caught looking at what it seems like the wicked are getting away with. In fact, read the Psalms. Read what David says about it. I was so frustrated. You know, I'm paraphrasing. He gets so frustrated with it. looks like the wicked are getting away with it. But he says, then I saw their end. God wins. It's already spoken. It's already done. Jesus doesn't stop Judas. He allows him to continue choosing his path, knowing full well what Judas has decided to do. His mind made up. John continues in John 13, 27. After Judas ate the piece of bread that Jesus handed him, Satan entered him. Wrestle with that for a while. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Isn't it interesting Satan clearly in that text possesses Judas. Okay? Who's in charge? How do we know that? He tells him what to do next. Ooh. <laughs> you guys, nothing changes the fact that God is always in charge. I'm just reinforcing the point I already made. Nothing changes the fact that Jesus is still calling all the shots. Despite the unawareness of the disciples who even thought that Judas had maybe even been sent to give some money to the poor. I talked about that last week. That was traditional that on the night of Passover, you, you would give benevolently to the poor. And so when Jesus says this to Judas, the disciples so misconstrue it, they're like, oh, he's going to give something to the poor. Interesting. Jesus is not deceived. There are many things we, we could possibly succeed in. Um, hiding from other people. There are many things that we could hide from others. Thoughts, but we cannot hide from Jesus. We cannot hide our, our actions, our intentions, and it just takes you to the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Blessed indeed are those who are pure of heart. Those who are pure of heart, they are blessed, and when you think about it, that really should correct how we act throughout our days, not because we're afraid of the judgment of God, because we long to love and serve him with everything that we are because of what he's done for us. I don't want my thoughts to be contrary to him. I want my thoughts to be like him. I want them to, I want to be conformed into his image, don't you? We long for that in our spirit. Blessed indeed are the pure in heart. Jesus said that the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. 
And notice this in the text. Jesus is very specific. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. He will go just as it is written about him. Nothing's going to be able to stop him from that mission. The enemy will not win. He can only lose. And even in this sense, we get a picture of something powerful. As the enemy longs to destroy Jesus, Judas is now caught up in that. His fate is tied to it. Even as Jesus is there, he's giving him opportunity, but Judas is intentionally making decisions and tying his fate to betrayal. And Jesus says it plainly as he pronounces this woe over Judas. It would have been better then if he had never been born. Who made Judas? Be real specific. Jesus did. That's a powerful statement. Jesus himself created Judas. Judas' decisions are so loathsome that Jesus spoke this woe over him. His decisions have destroyed him. Nothing matters more than the decision that we make about Jesus Christ. Nothing in this life, no decision that you will make matters more than what you choose to do with Jesus, the Son of God. Remember this, you guys. Failure in life is being successful at things that don't matter. We cannot miss this one. For the church, we just praise and worship God because he has saved us, because of his good grace, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and of my sin that was covered there. I have eternal life in him. But if you have not made a decision about Jesus, I implore you, this is the most important decision that you can ever make and you should not delay in making it. Because it's clear. To tie your fate to anything or anyone else is destruction. It pronounces that same woe upon anyone who chooses that fate. But when you come to Jesus, you are given eternal life. You are given the cleansing of the Son. And in fact, it says that God sees Jesus when he looks at us. He sees those who are in Christ, cleansed and new and washed, and we are now co-heirs with Christ. We're going to read through the letter to the Romans. I encourage you to come, and I want you to grab onto that language a week from this Wednesday. Listen to that letter read in its entirety, and listen to what it says about who we are in Christ Jesus and how he is the one who has justified us before the Father. And it's not of works. We've been justified by faith in him. No amount of money, ambition, agenda, or notoriety is worth giving up Jesus for. It's disgusting that Judas gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. It's such a small amount. Even in that time, that was a small amount. But when you think about what we see people give up Jesus for in this world, Church, it's our job to declare who he is and the great worth and the great value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. To so let his light shine through us that they would see that he is more precious than anything you can gain in this life. That knowing him, as Paul would say, I'd be willing to give up everything just to know him. Everything in this life. Judas doesn't win. 
He may think that he's accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish, but he, he isn't. The price is way too high. And the Son of Man will go just as it is written, as Jesus says, he will complete his mission to glorify the Father and ransom all of us. We'll close with this thought. Speaking of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, I'll read verses 10 through 12. But it was the Lord's good plan. Please notice that. It was the Lord's what? Good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants, he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. We serve the living Savior. Amen? Mm, More. Verse 11. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Amen? I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Sign us up. We're rebels. I want to be a part of that group. You guys, this is such a powerful passage of Scripture. This was spoken of hundreds of years before Jesus came. And Jesus fulfilled every single word. Because of his experience, my righteous servant, Jesus, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. He is going to bear all their sins. He bore your sins in the past. He bears your sins in this very moment. And he bore the sins that you will commit past, present, and future. There is nothing in your life that Jesus Christ has not atoned for. That's exciting. If you can't tell, that's really good news. That is the gospel truth. It's what we live for. It's what we die to tell this dying world about. It's what we're willing to sacrifice anything to preach. You guys, This has been entrusted to us. Do you really think that God chose the most efficient means to minister to this world? Think about that. Could he do it better than us? Who has he chosen? Ooh, everyone's like, ah, I don't know if I can say something here. God himself is much more capable of doing a good job at anything than I am. But who has he chosen? He has entrusted the truth of the gospel to the church, to his people, and he has empowered us with the Holy Spirit to preach it. Yeah, Satan's not going to win. Absolutely, my friend. Air five. 100%. Jesus has already won. We're just waiting for his coming. And until then, I want to remind you guys what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Remember when Jesus told that short little parable about when the master of the house leaves, he leaves his servants in charge, and he gives each his own work. And then he calls the disciples. He says, listen, he goes, the doorkeeper has a very specific job. I've given you guys a job to do. While I am gone, I've given you very specific jobs to do here on this earth. Are we, and this is an encouragement, this is not beating anybody down, are we about his work right now? Are we ready when we leave this building to go out there and to say, all right, Lord, you're not here right now, but you've entrusted this to me. 
You could do a far better job, but your Holy Spirit in me can do all that you desire to accomplish. So remove everything from my life that hinders you and use me for your glory. I don't say that we can't do it as good as he can just to like diminish our value. It doesn't. He has poured his Holy Spirit into his church. God says that this, is, this was his plan from the beginning. To save a people to himself of every tribe, tongue, and nation and to use them for his glory. That's a powerful thing. That should excite us. I'm part of what? Cool. Sign me up, Lord. Label me rebel. Unwaveringly walking forward with full knowledge of what awaits him in less than 24 hours, knowing he will be betrayed, denied, beaten, humiliated, crucified, he saw us, the people that God had sent him to save. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised the shame. And because of that ultimate victory, he is seated at the right hand of the Father and has saved us from sin and death. Amen? Amen. Our God is good. Our God is good. Our Savior is holy. And he loves us more than we could ever imagine because he looked death and brokenness and failure in the face. He looked his betrayer in the eyes. He looked what was looming at the hands of his own people, at the hands of the Romans. And he very clearly demonstrated, nevertheless, I am for going on. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you. Prepare our hearts to sing your praise in this time. Lord, as we just want to take a moment, and I know that I get really excited about this stuff. Lord, I pray that you would excite us for the things that you've placed us here to do. God, we just look at your choices to do things, and, and, and it just it blows my mind that you are so perfect, you are so sovereign, you are so holy. God, that you value relationship with us so much that you've chosen to use us and to bring us into this fellowship of the triune God, that God the Father, God the Son, God Holy Spirit has brought us into this new creation life, that we get to experience the fullness of who you are. Lord, we've, we've gotten to taste a little bit of it here, but in eternity in the new creation, even more so. Lord, we just long for, for that declaration to be made that we read in Revelation 21.3 where it says, God's dwelling is now with humans. My dwelling is now with people. Presence will be mine and I will be your God. Lord, we just long for that for presence. We just want to be closer and closer to you. We recognize that we see through a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. And Lord, we thank you for, for the Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for this time. We appreciate, God, what you have tasked us to do. None of us is here in this time by mistake. None of us is here for no task or, or just to, to hold down the carpet. Lord, every single one of us has been given gifts, has been given a mission to accomplish. Lord, every single one of us has been given a ministry. That term is not limited to a church building. Ministry is the work of God's people in a broken world. And so, Lord, would you just excite us for what you want to do, for what you are doing? And, and Lord, uh, we don't ask that we would have great vision. We ask, Jesus, that you would give us your vision, Jesus, what is your vision for the church in this time? 
What is your vision, Jesus, for our community and for our county? We want to be about that work. We want to walk in all the ways that you called us to walk. And we recognize, Lord, that you are the head. We're the body. So lead us. Show us what you desire to do so that we can fulfill the purpose for which we've been placed here. Lord, I just thank you for the body of Christ that we get to do this together. Jesus, as we look at your word, it's just a strong reminder that as we think of Judas and we think of you knowing what was going on in his head, you knowing what he was plotting and planning, Lord, for some of us, that might make us feel really exposed, but Jesus, we ought to see it as a good thing. Because, Lord, I think of the psalmist. I think of Psalm 139, where the psalmist says that, search me and know me, try me and know my thoughts. He opens himself up to you, but Lord, he says before that, your thoughts for me are more than the sands of the seashore. I can't even keep count. Lord, when we recognize that the one who loves our souls, who created us, who died to save us, knows our thoughts, that's not a scary thing. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be near you because you, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, when you knew every thought, that's when you died for us. You love us so much, you long to save us from the things that we think. You long to save us from the things that we do. Jesus, we love you. Thank you. Help us process. Help us to process in our hearts what it is that you want to do within us, Lord. Take us by the hand and walk with us. Lead us on. And Lord, I pray that as we worship that you be stirring and ministering in our hearts and refreshing us in the spirit. Lord, if there are any here who have not received you, if there are any listening who have not received you as Lord and Savior, I pray, God, that you would speak to their hearts, that they would fall on their knees before you and confess their sin and ask for you to save them, that they would receive you as Lord of their life, simply, just simply saying, I'm a sinner and I'm broken. And Jesus, only you can save me. I put my trust in you. All my hope. All my faith. And ask that you wash me and that you would cleanse me of my sin and make me a new creation by your power, by the power of your blood that was shed on the cross for my sake. That they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart Lord, confess that, Jesus, you are Lord and believe in their heart that you did rise from the dead. Knowing that Scripture says, if, that's, if someone is willing to do that, they will be saved. I don't know if there's anyone here that's doing that right now. But, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work. Save people for your glory, for your namesake. Jesus, we pray that in your precious and holy name. Amen.